Well, hey there, Grace Church. My name is Bob Bryce, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's, it's so good to be with you today as we continue in our series called Journey as we're walking through the Lord's Prayer. Now, so far, we've talked about how God is our loving Father and, and that his, his name is holy and, and above all other names. And we've learned more about what it means to ask for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But today, today is a little bit different because today we make this noticeable shift in the prayer itself because you'll notice up until now, we've been making kind of these cosmic level requests of God bigger than we can even comprehend actually. But, but today on our journey, we're exploring what it means to ask God for something that at least sounds pretty basic. Give us this day, our daily bread. Sounds simple, but I assure you that even though it does sound simple, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Jesus is, is helping us to understand something that's a fundamental truth about our relationship with God, who is our father, and also our relationship with him, Jesus, God's son. But before we get too far ahead, let me just uh, pray for us as we get going today here. Father, thank you that you are here with us, that you are teaching us and leading us and guiding us to be more like you. And so, Lord, we ask now in these next moments that your kingdom does come and your will is done, that you might reveal truth to us, each of us, that we come to know you more deeply and, and follow you more closely all the days of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, asking God for something so simple, like daily bread, right? Right after asking for such big things does feel a little bit strange. But the order here, I want us to realize this, the order here is no coincidence because Jesus is teaching us that we start our prayers by praying in a way that recognizes the majesty and the honor of God and, and puts God in the proper place, the place where he belongs, over and above absolutely anything and everything else in our lives. Because when someone or something else tries to sort of slip its way into God's seat, including and most especially us, when we try to do this, when we try to get into God's seat, well, then we're in big trouble. And we don't really like to admit this, do we? We, we kind of quite like the idea of, of being in charge and in control. But as with many things in God's kingdom, they're not what we expect Many times it's the, actually the opposite of what we expect and, and the opposite of what we want and the opposite of what we think we need. Because God is not like us in that way. So while we want to take credit and control over everything, the simple truth is that it's actually surrender that leads us into freedom while control leads us into bondage. Surrender leads us into freedom while control leads us into bondage. Now, this is pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? It's counterintuitive to the way that the world works, or at least the way that the world pretends to work anyway. The world, or, or maybe I should just 
focus specifically on, on our general culture in the United States. But our, our culture tries its best to put each one of us at the center of our own universe. It's all about us. And as a matter of fact, we take it as a sign of weakness to have to depend on anyone or anything. And so we're actually, you know, naturally quite proud of ourselves when we don't have to. So the idea of asking God to give us our daily bread feels like we're outright admitting that we can't just do it after all, no matter what Nike says. And of course, that's exactly what we are saying. We are saying this. We cannot do this. We can't and do not provide for ourselves. God provides everything for us and to us by and through his grace and his mercy. But, but even just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, more offensively, even still, he does this kind of providing for both the godly and the ungodly alike. And he does it whether or not we even ask. Matter of fact, Jesus says as much in, in uh, Matthew, right before he teaches the disciples this, this, this way to pray. In, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus says this. He's telling them how not to do things. And he says, uh, don't use all these words and Babylon. And then he says this, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need before you ask. Well, what in the world then? I mean, at, at first pass anyway, it seems like, well, there's really no point in asking God for anything if God already knows everything. But, but take a closer look at what Jesus actually says here. For your father knows what you need before you ask him, before you ask him. Notice Jesus doesn't tell them or us not to ask God for things. He's, he's telling us that God already knows what we need even before we ask him. Well, that's great, but then, then why do we even ask at all? Well, here's the key. It's part of being in a relationship with God who is our loving father. We know this to be true. Think about it. If you're, if you're a parent or a grandparent or, or an aunt or an uncle or, or, or even a friend that has been around, you know, young kids, you know, intuitively, you know what the child needs even before they ask for it, right? Before they ask for something to eat, you know that they need food. And, and even before they ask for a drink because they're thirsty, you know that they're going to be thirsty. But when they ask, when they come to you and ask for what they need, guess what? We enjoy giving it to them. We enjoy giving them what they need because it helps build trust in our relationship with them. It helps establish us as someone that they can count on, someone who's going to be there for them and, and someone who's going to pull through and deliver. The same is true with our relationship with God, our Father. Of course, he already knows what we need already, but he wants us to ask him for the things so that we can remember where they are really and truly coming from when he delivers them. Because they're not ultimately coming from the world or a result of our own efforts, even though we like to think they are. 
everything is provided by God alone. Everything belongs to God alone. So, so asking and receiving is part of us learning to trust him and understand what it means to have a God who is a loving father. And it's not just about bread either. We, we ask God, give us our daily bread, but, but we should really understand that we're not just asking for bread, physical bread alone. We're asking God to give us everything that we need to survive the day. We're dependent on him for absolutely everything. Everything from the air that we breathe to the shoes on our feet. It's all his. All of it belongs to him. And notice, it's interesting, we're, we're not asking God for an abundance here. It's not give me enough bread so I can last a week here. We're, we're asking just enough for us to survive the day, a daily provision and that helps keep us in this ongoing, everyday relationship with God. And praying for him to give us just what we need each day helps train us and teach us to focus regularly, look to God as our ultimate provider for everything. Instead of looking to anything or, or anyone else, including ourselves. So even though Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's not teaching us not to ask. He's teaching us why we ask. He's not teaching us not to ask. He's teaching us why we ask. Give us this daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread is a relational statement as much as it is a request. Because first and foremost, it's, it's a confession of our dependence, our absolute dependence on him. And now based on your situation and your life circumstances and where you're at and all this kind of stuff, you might either find this whole idea really hard to even consider or imagine or totally and desperately true. We're all across the board on this. So maybe you're somewhere in between those two extremes. But one thing is true for all of us. When it comes to convenience and excess, those things hide dependence. Convenience and excess hides dependence. In other words, if I have a pantry full of food and I have clean water that just comes out of my faucet, well, then I will find it a bit harder to understand the kind of dependence that Jesus is teaching us about here. But if I have very little or I even have nothing, and every day is just a struggle to survive. Well, then I start to understand a little bit more about what Jesus means here. And therefore, I think one of the best ways for us to, to get on the same page and to get to the heart of the matter, no matter where you're at, is to is take, take a look at Exodus chapter 16. It's almost all the way at the beginning of the Bible, second book in the Bible. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. The words are going to be on the screen as well, so you can follow along. And it's important to know that all of what we're going to talk about takes place kind of right after this great event known as the Exodus, which is where God's chosen people, the Israelites, have been freed from slavery in Egypt. God did this. God intervened. He, he led the people out through a guy named Moses. He called Moses to do this. And we, we talked a few weeks, about, uh, weeks ago about how the Israelites had been in slavery in Egypt 
for over 400 years and God heard their prayers and he intervened and delivered them in a mighty way. And he had called this guy Moses to lead the people out of Egypt so that they could be led into God's presence. And matter of fact, the well-known escape route uh, happened through the famous parting of the Red Sea. So after getting to the other side of the Red Sea safely, the Israelites stopped and stayed a while at a place called Elam. And this was a really nice, like a lush place with palm trees. Sounds kind of like paradise or at least like an oasis. So they've been there a while, but then God tells Moses, all right, time to get moving again. And so the people start moving and they, they head out into the wilderness or the desert where this is where they really are starting to learn more about what it means to be God's people and to depend on God for everything. Because in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, daily necessities are scarce, to say the least. Water, food, shelter, all of it, all of them are in short supply. And, and sometimes they're just totally non-existent. So after the people are a, a good distance out from the, the paradise where they were in Elam, the situation became increasingly desperate. And what happens? I think we all know this. What happens when we get hungry, thirsty, and increasingly desperate? Well, for one thing, it doesn't, it doesn't really bring out our best, does it? it? We don't even really think all that clearly in those moments. I believe they call that hangry these days or something like that. And the, and the Israelites are quite hangry. Hangry. <laughs> and they start to grumble, start to grumble. Take a look at verse one. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, there are a couple amazing things happening here. Now, first of all, remember this. These, these are the same people. This is the same group of people that, that had the Red Sea parted in front of them. God held back the sea with his mighty hands and let these people pass through on dry ground and then released all of that water and wiped out all of the enemies that were chasing after them. And so it's just kind of, at least for me, it's just kind of hard to imagine that through that, they still didn't understand that God is with them and God is calling the shots. God is in charge. But they, just, they don't seem to get it because they, they blame Moses and his brother Aaron for this trouble that they're having. And so it, it says that the whole community grumbled against them. It's almost like they're saying, all right, Moses, now what? You know, this was, this was sure a great idea. So there's a misunderstanding right away from the people of, of who's really in charge, who's really in control here. That's one, that's one thing. It's more than that. There's, there's more trouble. Take a look at verse three. 
the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So what they're saying is that, hey, maybe things weren't so bad in Egypt after all. Maybe it wasn't as bad as we thought it was. Sure, of course, you know, we were slaves and we were horribly oppressed and mistreated, but at least we ate well. We didn't have to worry about that. Way to go, Moses. You somehow managed to find even a way to make things worse. But that's the question. Are things worse? Are they worse? Think about it. They were freed from their bondage by a God who hand chose them and then proceeded to deliver them out of their dire circumstances in Egypt and who made promises to them that, that they will be his people and he will be their God, that, that he would be the one to care for them and to lead them and guide them. But here's the thing. They don't, they don't really want that. Matter of fact, they said they'd rather have died with full bellies in Egypt than to follow Moses on this journey to some unknown destination. They'd rather have died. Now, doesn't that sound just like us sometimes? Think about it. We have a God who right now, still today, continues to open new doorways and pathways that would lead and deliver us to new places and phases of our lives but what do we do? We'd often rather just stay stuck right where we're at. Or worse, maybe we start that journey and then we go back to where we were. What makes us so afraid that we'd almost always choose what we know, even if it's bad, we would choose what we know over what we don't when it comes to following God? Why is that? When, when God says go, how many times do our feet suddenly feel like we're wearing cement boots? Can't seem to go. Don't want to go. Would rather stay put or go back. Well, when it comes to following God, we're most often afraid of the unknown because we have a faith problem. We have a faith problem. We have a faith problem just like the Israelites because we tend to tether or attach at least our idea of faith to exactly the wrong things because we start believing that they're the things that give us, well, just the right amount of control over life and circumstances and situations. But again, as we already said, surrender is what leads us into freedom while control leads us into bondage. Now, I'm not just talking about, let's go out and make a bunch of really irresponsible and bad decisions and then somehow just hope that God sorts it all out. That is not faith at all. That, that, that is, matter of fact, that's just foolishness. It's not faith, it's foolishness. So when I say we have a faith problem, what I mean is that we struggle often, frequently, with this problem of trusting God. 
know, I know we never really want to admit such a thing out loud and, you know, what would anyone say and all that kind of stuff. And so we try to do our best to cover it up. But doing all that, going through all that effort, trying to cover it up is much harder than just telling the truth. God can handle this. God can handle this. Let's just tell the truth. The truth is that we often find it very difficult to trust a God that we can't see and touch and feel, especially when he's leading us into something new. But rest assured, even when we doubt, like I said, God can handle it. Even when we doubt and even when we grumble, God alone is still faithful. God is still faithful. And so let's continue in Exodus 16. We're going to pick up at verse 11 here. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight, you will eat meat. And in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Okay, so I want us to notice this pattern right here in, that we see. This, this pattern of God's work, God moving, goes from hearing, leads to knowing, leads to seeing. Hearing leads to knowing leads to seeing. And so we'll start with hearing. Like we've said throughout this journey series, we have a God who hears us. He hears the grumbling of the Israelites, just like he hears our grumbling. And he also hears our prayers. But he doesn't just listen. He's also a God who speaks. And in this case, he speaks a promise to them. You will eat meat in the evening and bread in the morning. Moses and Aaron turn around and proclaim that promise to the people so that all the people hear it. That's the first part. Here, we hear the promise. But notice that God is, is making this promise not just to the people so that they have something to eat, though, of course, that's important. It's, it's more purposeful than that. I don't know if you caught this, but at the end of verse 12, God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you something to eat so that then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. So knowing who made the promise is the second part. Knowing who made the promise is the second part. On, on the one hand, the people will indeed be fed. Yes. But in addition, the goal and the real goal here is that they come to know that it is the Lord, their God, who is really running the show here. That they know that when he makes a promise, it's different than we make prom when we make promises. When he makes a promise, he will deliver. Because let's face it, lots of people, both then and now, lots of people make lots of promises and very, very few actually deliver or even can deliver on what they promise. I don't know about you, but this is especially true during this wonderful election season, right? But God is not running for office. God is not running for office here or anywhere. God is teaching the people and teaching us that he is a trusted provider over and above all else. In other words, 
when the people hear a promise from God, when we hear a promise from God, God wants us to know that we can trust him because he will deliver. He will deliver. And then he does. He delivers yet again. In verse 13, that evening, quail came and covered the camp, just like he said. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So they called this bread manna, which essentially means we really don't know what this is. Manna. Remember that. So they, they call it that. And Moses says, all right, everyone gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, which is nine, a little over nine cups, by the way, just for reference. Uh, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. They followed what God had told them. Well, so far, so good here, right? The people were seeing the promise delivered just like God had said it would happen. They're seeing the promise delivered. So remember, hearing leads to knowing, leads to seeing. But the honeymoon didn't last long because part of this deal is that the bread is only good for that day. It has a really quick expiration date or a, or a really short shelf life. And so Moses warns them about this in verse 19. Moses says, no one is to keep any of it till morning. No one is, should keep any of it till morning. But, but you know how people are, right? How do we do when we're told what to do? Do we follow directions? You know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Take a look at verse 20. Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning. Well, how do you think it worked out? It was full of maggots and it began to smell really bad. So naturally, Moses was angry with them. Now, why did the people do this? Why didn't they just follow the instructions here? It was for their own good. Well, because it doesn't take long for us to realize that doubt is creeping back in. Doubt is very infectious. Sure, God delivered today, but what about tomorrow? What happens tomorrow? What if God takes the day off? What if he doesn't show up? Sh shouldn't we just set some aside and in case God doesn't deliver again? We all know this kind of feeling, don't we? I mean, need I say more than hand sanitizer and toilet paper? But the root cause of all of these issues is the same. When gripped by fear, people lose trust and they lose trust quickly. We all do. And the faster fear spreads, the less we trust anyone other than, of course, ourselves. We put ourselves in God's seat, and then we start believing that we know best. We want to be in control. But again, surrender is what leads us into freedom, while control is what leads us into bondage. 
Fear is an awfully heavy chain, isn't it? And it's the product of our misplaced trust. In other words, when we start trusting anything or anyone more than we trust God, then we do have a good reason to be afraid. When our hope is is tied to the things of this world and, and all the things that it claims to offer, then we are bound for, we are even bound to disappointment. Matter of fact, it's fear that walks us right into the enemy's trap because fear is the main weapon of the evil one. And he uses this as he seeks to to bind us to doubt and to sin and even to death itself. Fear drives us into looking for solutions in a fallen world rather than looking to the God who created the world and is in the process of redeeming it. We're looking for God in the wrong places like we talked last week. We, We are at our most vulnerable and are most susceptible to these kinds of traps and these kinds of temptations when we find ourselves out in the wilderness, just like the Israelites. Even though it's not, you know, the wilderness in exactly the same way, the wilderness takes many forms. Maybe it's a a health issue you're facing, or or maybe it's your job, or, or maybe a lack of a job. Maybe it's a close relationship with a spouse or a child or or a parent. Maybe it's an addiction. And it just seems easier to go back to the addiction over and over and over again. Maybe it's politics or, or maybe it's even social media or arguing about politics on social media. Maybe maybe it's the loss of a loved one or 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 maybe there's a tragedy that's happened in your life. No matter what it is. When we're in the wilderness, we can't see our way out very well when we're in it. We definitely can't see our way out without God. But there is another who also knows a thing or two about being in the wilderness and dealing with these kinds of issues. Take, take a look at the beginning of the, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And listen to what Jesus says. This is a very interesting answer. Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God interesting. So again, we see this connection between God and bread here. And and Jesus, he says, as it is written. So he's quoting something. What's he quoting? He's actually quoting the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 specifically is is where Moses is giving a sermon to the people and he's, he's summing up this whole experience that we just got done talking about in Exodus chapter uh, 16. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 8, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
So while asking God to give us our daily bread is certainly asking for God to meet our daily physical needs, it's also more than that. It's more than that. Daily bread must be something that meets our spiritual needs as well. It's got to meet our spiritual needs. And that is something that a physical piece of bread alone can't ever do. We need more than just physical bread to, feel, to fill up our bellies. We need something that will fill and sustain our souls. Jesus helps us understand this in the, the Gospel of John chapter 6. Jesus, he's teaching a, a big crowd of people. This is right after he fed 5,000 people through this miraculous provision. And so people want to keep talking about this. And so this, this whole discussion about bread comes up again. And again, we see how this is all connected. If you look at John chapter six, verse 47, this is what Jesus says. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. Listen to this. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It's true. We can't live by bread alone. They couldn't live by bread alone either. They died in the wilderness. So when we ask God for our daily bread, we're confessing to him that we simply cannot live without his daily provision. But that's not just physically. That's spiritually as well. We're not just asking for, for what we eat and drink and the essentials that we need to survive. We're asking for Jesus to be the Lord and the King of our lives. To reign and to rule in mighty ways that continue to deliver us from all of the false promises of this world. And to guide us and to lead us into knowing him more deeply and following him more closely as, as we are invited to continue being his instruments of grace and mercy. Remember, give us our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. It's not just give me, 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 me. No, it's give us our daily bread. How can we help with the distribution of that? How can we help meet people's physical and spiritual needs? Because the bread that Jesus is and gives is not only what we need to sustain life, it is life. It is life itself. And we cannot live without it. Surrender leads us into freedom, while control leads us into bondage. Lord, give us our daily bread. Give us Jesus. Amen.